We're going to be finishing our, our, this series we've been in. We're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 2. If you have a Bible and can turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. And if you're, if you're new or you've been away a bit over the summer, it's great to, have, great to be back. And uh, what we've been doing is looking at the little letters in the New Testament. And there's five or six little letters that are just only a chapter or so. And we've been going through them. And if you've been around for the series, you'll probably notice that a lot of them have focused on false teaching and false teachers. Uh, whether they've used that word or not, you, you think, oh yeah, okay, 2 John was all about people denying that Jesus was human, really. And 3 John was about trying to give this guy Diotrephes a punch on the nose for being a bad controlling leader. Jude was all about false teaching. And then, as we're going to see today, 2 Peter is a lot about false teaching. And so that's going to be the theme we want, I want to look at today is false teaching and what to do about it. And that is, it's not going to be cheery. Um, it's, I'm afraid, not the sort of Sunday where everybody goes, yeah, what, what a joy-filled message. I trust we'll see hope and good news in it towards the end. But it is kind of a sobering sort of subject. And it's one that probably many of us would rather not have to think about very much. And some of us might actually struggle with even some of the language that Peter himself uses as we read it. It's very direct. It's the sort of chapter that uh, I imagine... Um, when we just had the invitation to come and share communion together, probably the person did not, I wasn't here, but I doubt the person read from 2 Peter 2 to exhort us to worship God. It's not going to be that kind of text. It's a difficult text to read. And some of us are probably wired to think, I'd much rather not think about false teaching. I'd much rather think about the truth, and then you know the false will sort itself out. And generally, by the way, in the church, we do. So if this is your first week, we don't do this very often. This is the first time in the last two years I've been here that we've done it at all. Um, And we did a series last year called We Believe, and we didn't do a series called We Don't Believe, and we think that's probably a good thing because that's not the right focus. But at the same time, one of the things the Bible tells us to do is to beware that false teachers are going to come and try and attack the church. And you need to be aware of that. And there's actually a, a spiritual warfare dimension to this. There's understanding the reality of being in an age where not everybody believes the truth. And some people who don't want to stop the church believing the truth as well. And so that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning in 2 Peter 2. And I think, if anything, the passage we're going to read is more relevant even now than it even was then. Because there are probably even more false teaching around now. I, I, Imagination-wise, you can see that. That in the ancient world, if you want to get a false teaching into a church, you have to physically go to the people and tell them about it. Most people can't read. They certainly don't have tech or phones or internet. So you have to go and tell people. So it's easy to spot. Whereas now, you go, wow, we've got 1,500 people in this church gathering in all sorts of different places. All of us can access any number of websites and books and TV stations and any, I mean, tweets, whatever it might be. We are, by virtue of living now, continually inundated with possible false teaching. And so, in a sense, the, the realities that we have to think through that Peter was addressing are probably even more relevant now. I just did a quick Twitter survey um, a couple of weeks back to prepare for this message. And spoke, what do you guys think, to the people who follow me anyway, what do you think are the biggest uh, false teaching challenges facing the church. I just got dozens and dozens and dozens. I can't remember. It was last time I looked, it was like 80 plus different responses. And uh, people listing all kinds of things. Like, and I think this is very broad. There's a lot of things out there that are bad. Now, it's not a reason to panic, as we'll see, but there is a lot out there. And the, uh, the top few are people saying prosperity gospel, cheap grace, Gnosticism, wrong teachings on sexuality, individualism, denial of the authority of the Bible, and there were loads and loads of others. They just kept coming, and I thought, wow, this, there's a lot out there. 
in our day. And you can't respond to all of those in one message. You'd give them like 15 seconds each. It'd be useless. But it's interesting that, well, I was encouraged as I looked at the list. I thought, I, I do think we have addressed in some context all of those things I've just read out at some point in the last year at King's. As in, without knowing that was the list, because I think that's what, those are some of the topics we teach into. So I thought that's encouraging. But it's also, you just can't address all those things in one message. And that isn't what Peter does either. And that's fascinating. What Peter, instead of saying, here's all the things that are wrong, let's re- debunk them. Peter says, look at the way that false teachers work. And you'll be able to spot them anywhere. And what he particularly does, he says, this is why they do it. And this is how they do it. And then says, and here's how we should respond. Here's the motives they have. Here's the methods they use. And now off the back of that, here's what we can do. So let's read 2 Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And then he spends the next six verses giving some biblical examples of how God judges the unrighteous but preserves the godly. We're going to jump down to verse 10. Bold and willful, they don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, angels. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. I told you it wasn't cheerful. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if... After they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is the word of God. Now, I say that at the end of every time I read the Bible in this church. You've probably noticed. I often say that every week. But this is one of those passages where you almost have to remind yourself, man, this is the word of God. This is strong. He's comparing people to dogs who throw up in the garden and then wander off and then always go keep circling back to it because they just like the... And I think, wow, he is angry. And he wants us to be aware, very vigilant and aware of the reality of false teaching. 
And so that's what we're going to spend some time on, as much as I know it isn't very cheery. And the specific ways in which false teachers teach, the things that they try and get you to believe, will vary from culture to culture. And, but the motives don't. And so Peter, as I say, helpfully addresses the motives, which don't really change, rather than the subjects, which often do. And in reality, you see, a lot of the, things, a lot of the false teachings that would challenge our generation simply could not have come up in the ancient world, in the first century. And nobody in the first century would have, there was just not enough money available to talk in terms of the prosperity gospel. They wouldn't have come up with it. They wouldn't have come up with gay marriage. They wouldn't have come up with individualism because the society they were in just simply would never have entertained those ideas. Ours does. But it would be very difficult then for us if Peter had said, here's the big three, and then we'd come up with a new false teaching and go, oh no, I don't know how to respond. So Peter doesn't do that. Peter says, the heart... The motives, the way these people do things doesn't change, even though the content does. And the motives of false teachers, if you were here when we looked at Jude, you've probably already come across what they are, because Jude says the exact same things. The key motives for false teachers are basically the big three, money, sex, power. Almost always the same. When false teaching is at work, that's of, there's often one or more of those three things at work. And you can see them in the text. Like money is that false teachers are often motivated by greed and exploitation. Okay, so verse 3 says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. I know there's a number of people in this room who are at this church because your experience elsewhere in Christianity has been a little bit of coming to think, I think I'm being exploited out of greed. Not everybody at all, but I've met a number of people here for whom that's your story. You've seen this firsthand. Verses 14 to 16. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baal. If you know the Old Testament, but Balaam is a a renter prophet. That's what he does. Like He is basically a guy that you can pay to go and curse another group of people. And that's what he does. He says, yeah, sure, I'll take the money. And then he tries to prophesy curses against Israel. It doesn't succeed. But it's like Peter is saying, there are people like that in the church. There are people who have realized you can make money out of teaching things that are not true. And if you do, some people will pay you to do it. And they might pay you because they think that they're funding your ministry, and they might pay you because they want you to say something you shouldn't. But either way, you can make money as a Christian teacher or preacher or writer or whatever. And they will be looking to exploit you out of greed. Now, I'm aware, by the way, of the irony here. because I'm paid by the church, and I'm teaching this stuff. So I'm hoping that an awful lot of people in this room are going, how would we know you weren't a false teacher? We will come on to that. And I, obviously, in some ways, I just want to raise it, because you should ask that question. Right? I mean, we, we should. How do you know that the pastors here are not? Similarly, and I, I'm hopeful by the time you've seen what the Word of God says, you'll be able to go, okay, that's how we would know, and you do need to be aware of it. But money is one of those motivations. You've also, in the passage, you've got sex. And motivation, false teachers might be motivated by sex. And they might be motivated to undermine biblical teaching on sex, which interestingly happens in two, di- two directions and not one. So if I say false teachers sometimes try and undermine biblical teaching on sex, probably some of us immediately think because what they do is they loosen biblical sexual morality. So the Bible says actually the two callings of the Christian sexually are either to live as a single celibate person or to live in the covenant marriage between one man and one woman. And that's, those are the two things God holds up and says, pursue those things, not the other things. But, of course, so what often happens today is false teachers might come in and say, no, 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 you can do any number of other things. You can have sex with this, all over. Some of us would immediately think that's a danger, and it is. But interestingly, you read your New Testament, there's an opposite danger, which is that probably less common now, but certainly in the early church, a lot of people were saying, 
the opposite. They were saying sex needs to be tightened in its restriction in the sense that it isn't really something Christians should do at all. People would teach against marriage. They'd teach to abstain from sex. They'd say, you mustn't have sex because it's dirty or worldly or not really very holy. And actually, both distortions have come in at times to the church to corrupt the church from what she should be doing. And so, effectively, again, you see in verse 2, many will follow their sensuality and the way of truth will be blasphemed. Verse 13, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. This is strong language. Yeah, their hearts are trained in greed, eyes full of adultery. And he's trying to get you to see this, these motives will govern people, even if what they're talking about doesn't look like it's sex. Right? So that's a second motive we find in the text. And then the third is the motive of power. Or actually, a probably better word, that, at least for what Peter means, is that of authority, which I think is very similar. But the idea that really these people, as you said in verse 1, they will even deny the master who bought them, that is Jesus. So these people will be so intoxicated with the ability to do what they want that they will feel even Jesus doesn't have the right to tell them they're wrong. They will deny the master who owns them. They will say, he's not my master, I'm in charge. Verse 10, those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. There's a lot of false teachers who just hate any authority other than their own. The idea of submitting to somebody else, Jesus, clearly, or anybody else even in the church, it's just, I don't want to go there. Because there's a desire for power. And false teachers will often reject and even despise the sovereign power and authority of Jesus and actually an appropriate level of human power mediated through other people. And those three motives which appear in this letter and in the one other letter that gives us a detailed look at it, namely Jude, you get the same three things. as If you were here when Charles spoke, you would have seen Charles do a great job explaining that as well. That's the same three issues. And those seem to be the motives underlying false teaching past, present, and future. And sometimes it is very obvious that they are, and sometimes it's not. Okay, so sometimes you will see, hear a false teaching. Some of us are doing it already. We're thinking, hmm, I know of this particular false teaching, and I can see very easily the connection between money, sex, or power, and that doctrine. It's kind of obvious sometimes. So you might have somebody who is making an argument that Christians can have sex outside of the context of covenant marriage between a man and a woman, and then they themselves start having sex outside of that, that context. And you can very easily say, I've, I've had that myself in pastoral ministry, not in this church yet, <laughs> but in another church I said where somebody came and did exactly that. They made a, tried to make a biblical argument that Jesus was not opposing sexual immorality, he was only opposing prostitution. And very quickly you get in the conversation, you ah, this is because you are having sex with someone who you're not married to, right? And so there's a very easy connection, and the same thing happens with, you know, with gay sex. It happens all over the place, right? It's not uncommon. You might just very quickly connect the dots between the doctrine and the practice. You get the same with money, right? You might have a prosperity preacher who, to take one example, who'd be well-known to some of us, I guess, who I looked up recently, but if you have somebody who's preaching a prosperity message and ends up having, they've got two Rolls Royces, a private jet, several houses worth over a million dollars, you look at them and you think, I can see the connection between the doctrine and the practice. It's obvious that that's there. You might have a leader who argues for centralizing all power in themselves, but actually they themselves are a bit of a power-crazed loon and the church becomes almost cult-like in the way that it handles itself, and there's no accountability or challenge to what this person wants to do. And again, you'd say, all right, the theology leads naturally to the practice. It's like a very tragic contemporary one, right? This last week, 
Some of us, you read about this, you're seeing this in the Roman Catholic Church right now. It's like, we don't even know to what extent this cover-up seems to be going and how many people knew about it, but just it seems like a a massive sex abuse cover-up taking place in which money, sex, and power are all involved. It's people's jobs, people's power, their reputation, and of course, sexual predation is all taking place. And so sometimes, tragically, you can very easily see how those three motives lead to these doctrines. But sometimes you can't. Sometimes those motives will be there even though the issue looks like it's about something else because it'll be dressed up in theological clothes. Right? This happens sometimes, and you read church history, you'll see it. It looks like the debate's about something completely unrelated, and then it turns out in the end it is about money, sex, and power. So 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation splits Europe at the time into Protestant and Catholic. That debate, now we would look at it theologically and say it's about justification or whatever. It's about how people are made right with God. And of course it is. But if you know the history of it, what's fascinating is that it's triggered and initially it's really not about that at all. Before anyone started arguing about justification, it's actually about money. It's about fundraising. Because what's happened is there are some traveling Roman Catholic preachers who have begun to raise money for a building project that they want to do in Rome by selling people the right to get their loved ones out of purgatory back by the Pope. There was a German traveling preacher whose name was John Tetzel. Who used to, it, he said it in German, but it translates and it rhymes in English. But he had this jingle he would use. He would say, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. You think, okay, so this is a debate about justification of purgatory, but originally this is really a debate about money. This is you're trying to make money. You're trying to sell the grace of God, at least as it would seem to Martin Luther, and that the whole thing blew up. And 500 years later, Protestants and Catholics are still on different pages about some of these things, but it was triggered by a debate about money. Legalism is often a power grab. Legalism, as in, you, you, it's not enough just simply to be accepted in Christ because you repent of your sins and believe in him. You also need to do these other things. Right? That's often not just a false doctrine. That's often a power grab. Because if I tell you what those other things you have to do are, then I've got power over you. Yeah, Because I'm in charge. Cheap grace, on the other end of the spectrum, is often about sex. It's often people saying, no, isn't it wonderful that now Jesus loves us? Nobody cares what we do. We can do anything we like, no matter how sinful it is. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And again, that sort of view, I think in the end that's often going to be about sex because it means somebody can say, I can have Jesus and this sexual expression I want. And so you actually, it, it looks like it's about a doctrine, but often underneath it's about something else. I, prominent pastor in America just a couple of years ago, teaching a pretty deviant vision of grace as I understood him, and then his marital affair came out, and I thought, oh no, there's like a connection between, but it looks like you're saying this, but underneath it's because of that. Individualism is often about money, because if, I, if everything's mine, I'm an individual, I get to keep everything. I don't have to be part of a community, I don't have to serve the poor or fund the spread of the gospel, I can simply keep my stuff. So it looks like it's about this, but it's actually about that. You're saying what cultural influencers want to hear is often about power. Because you don't want to lose your influence, your seat at the table. And that happens on the left and the right, actually. Right? So on the right, you can probably see it in the United States with these sort of evangelical pastors and preachers who gather around Donald Trump and defend everything he says. And you look at that and you say, I think you are whitewashing sin, clear sin in many cases, as I'm not talking about policy even here, just personal morality, on the basis, though, of your you would lose your influence and power if you didn't. If you confronted it, you'd, you'd lose your seat at the table. 
But that can happen on the left as well. Because you have people in this, culture, in this country who would say, I, will, I love speaking out about biblical ethics and what Jesus is like, except when the culture I'm in doesn't want to hear about it, and then I just don't say those things, because otherwise I'd lose my influence. And actually, we can, there's a risk for anybody there. And if that then becomes a basis for false teaching, you can see the connection. You peddle a crazy interpretation of Scripture. Say you peddle a crazy interpretation of the book of Revelation. Not that anyone's ever done that. But let's say you did, and you sell it, Right? Your motor may simply be the sells well. Make a lot of money. Right? I've got, I've got not, no problem with selling books. Right? I sell books myself. and um, In fact, we, in fact, I think probably selling books of mine over here. Like We do that. The money does go back to the church, which I hope is the one safeguard against the kind of thing. But it's just helpful. I'm not, I don't have a problem with people selling books. But you've got to know that one of the things that might sneak into your heart, if you know that doing this will make you that much money, is you could end up teaching it, not because it was true, but because it was wealth-generating. And actually, to take one example of all three of these coming together, biblical defenses of slavery looked like they were about interpreting the Bible and looked like they were about showing Paul and all the rest, but actually they're often about money, sex, and power. Because if I own a slave, I have power over them, I can make them work for no money, and therefore make a lot of wealth for myself, and I might be able to have sex with them as well. So often the motives, the presenting issue is this, but underneath it's really about that. So we've got to be mindful. I said this wasn't very cheery. It's not always obvious how money, sex, and power are involved in undergirding false teaching, but they usually are in there somewhere. And that's why false teachers do what they do. But Peter also shows us how they do it. And he gives us, it's not just like, here's the motive, but you might hear that some of this stuff and think, how does anyone ever get away with that? Well, Peter gives some insights into the methods of false teachers. And for my part, I'd say as a pastor and someone who's debated what I think are false teachings in the public square a bit with other Christians. I think all of these are alive and well today, for my part. I think they are. Right? First one he mentions is secrecy. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. False teachers don't come in through the front door, usually. They go in through the bathroom window. They pick off people who are new or vulnerable or don't know the Bible very well or recently converted or whatever it may be in secret. And often they will make it... I've had the, someone had done this to me in pastoral ministry in a previous church, where somebody came in and said, I don't know, I, I've got no problem at all with that. I think you're absolutely right about that. But I, want to, I just want to teach this. And I'm like, mm, okay, well, let's give it a shot. And then later it emerges, you did not at all agree with the position you said you did. I know that now, but I didn't realize that then and shouldn't have let you do that. Because there's a, there's a secrecy to it sometimes. I, don't, I know if I came straight out and said, here's my new heresy, you'd all go, we don't want it. But instead they go, ah, have you noticed that? And then it's, it's often secretive. Secondly, they use deceit. Right? There's just flat-out lies. They will exploit you with false words, reveling in their deception. Sometimes false teachers just say stuff that's not true. And they trust that you won't know that it's wrong, that we won't know it's not true, and won't follow it up. In the age of Google, that's a little bit harder to get away with because there's a lot of information available to us. And again, believe me, that's something that weighs on me when I'm preaching in this church, thinking, actually, I could say pretty much anything, and somebody in this room could just, not that you are or are doing this now, but could just go online and find out if it's true. In some ways, it's health. It's kind of health. I'm not saying you should all do that now, um, but I think it's not a bad idea for preachers to be aware. No, of course. People, need to, people will find out if I've just been blowing smoke, if this goes public. But sometimes false teachers do that. They just tell you lies. For, thirdly, there's defiance. Sometimes false teachers just, they do not tremble. They count it pleasure, speaking loud boasts of folly. False teachers can persuade a whole bunch of people sometimes just by being really confident that they're right. 
I had a debate with a character like this uh, a while back about really essential Christian things, like the authority and truthfulness of Scripture and what Jesus did on the cross and Christian you know, mar- marriage and sexual ethics. And so Big things. I was debating this, and I think... I'm listening to this person thinking, in some ways, you're very, the swagger, the brazenness, the bullishness with which you're approaching this, you're speaking so confidently, some people will believe you're right, just because you're so confident. Sometimes that that level of defiance in itself can win people over. Fourthly, false promises, right? They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. Often false teachers do this. This will give you financial freedom, this will give you sexual freedom. And then you go, oh, okay, great, where do I sign? And you realize, in the end, I've become a slave to the same thing that enslaves you. And actually, there is, a, there is a master here, but it isn't Jesus. I've become a slave, servant or a slave of the wrong person. It looks like freedom, but actually, that's now a new thing that is going to master and overcome me. You get some more in chapter 3, actually. Peter picks up some others. He uses the, the example of mockery. And to, to, we haven't got time to read all, the whole uh, chapter 3, but he uses the example of mockery. Remember, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? People will laugh at you. And that's sometimes false teachers just need to do that. Right? The internet's made that much easier. Right? I can ridicule Christian orthodoxy by just... Putting, taking something out of context, making fun of it, putting a picture or a gif underneath it. I've just laughed at you, and you might now feel like you need to change your theology because you don't like people laughing at you, and neither do I. And Peter says, yeah, that's one of the things they do. They shame people. They ridicule people. There's oversight. That is deliberately overlooking stuff that they know is true that wouldn't help their case. They deliberately overlook this. Do not overlook this, beloved. That's a number of different ways that they do it. And that's a good strategy sometimes because people might hear what they're saying but don't realize that there are good reasons to reject it. And so a good practice, and this is something we do here, I think quite regularly, I think it's a good thing to do, is when you're teaching something, you think, there are people who are, good Christian people disagree about this and this is why we are here, but there are others who differ. That's healthy because that shows, I'm not trying to overlook things. Right? And that's something we would try and do here. And then lastly, distortion. Sometimes people will quote the Bible, but just twist its meaning completely to change it to mean something else. There are some things in Paul that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. So if you read the Bible and think, man, this is tricky sometimes, Peter thinks so too. Yay! But just be careful, because some people will twist those difficulties to make them mean something totally different. And when I look at those seven I've just used, and there's probably others, the one thing that binds them together that I find interesting is that all of them are used in the garden by the serpent. You notice that? The devil was the first false teacher. All of them are. The serpent was more stealthy than any other animal the Lord God had made. The serpent comes in and it lies, and it misquotes God, and then it makes false promises. You will be like God, and then it makes outright falsehoods. It says, you will not surely die, and it ridicules, and it does all of those things brazenly. The first false teacher was the devil. So it's no surprise that every false teacher since, in a sense, copies the method that their father originally used. Now, I know that's strong way of la- strong language of talking about somebody, but this is what Peter does. doesn't want us to pull our punches on this. wants to be very aware. So if that is the problem, what is the solution? Have you ever done kids' work? You know that you say to the, say the, ask any question to a group of kids, and you say, what's the answer? And the children will all go, Jesus! And it's usually right. Yeah? 
And in this case, it is. What is the answer to false teaching and false teachers? Jesus. Because no sooner has the serpent come in and tricked humanity than God has made a promise to him, to the serpent that is, and said, I am going to send a truth teller who is going to crush your head and silence your lies forever. That's the gospel, isn't it? The theology of the whole Bible is that lies lead people away from worship and joy in God. But God will then send a redeemer, a seed, who is going to bring them back by telling them the truth and silencing the lies of the devil. And that's exactly what Peter wants us to keep our eyes on here. So look at how he concludes the letter in the final two verses, chapter 3, 17 to 18. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... Take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. I just leave that up there. Knowing this beforehand. So Peter leads in here. What's the response to all of this? And he's obviously there's a bit in between that we've just not had time to read. But knowing this before, knowing that people were going to come in and say bad stuff, You knew that was going to happen. Jesus said it. The apostles said it. The prophets said it. Don't worry. Don't freak out. It's all right. You knew this would come. I did too. Peter's going, Jesus told me. It's not a problem. So in some ways, although chapter 2 is pretty heavy, chapter 3, he's actually fairly chilled. It's like, you don't need to panic. If you had a T-mug in those days, it would just say, keep calm, carry on. You do not need to worry that the devil is going to win. You've actually always known that people would come in. and Of course, the devil hates the church. Of course the devil wants a church like this to be wiped off the face of the earth and to stop singing songs of praise to Jesus and telling the world that Jesus is good and serving the poor in his name. The devil hates it when that happens. So actually, Peter just says, "Yeah, you knew this was going to happen. Don't worry. Just hang on. Hang in there. Don't freak out. And one of my favorite lines on this is uh, the reformer Theodore Beza spoke about using the image of a blacksmith. And it's such a great image. Imagine a blacksmith making shoes. No, or horseshoes or whatever it is. And he's just banging away. And Theodore Beza said, it belongs to the church of God to suffer blows and not to strike them. But the church of God is an anvil which has worn out many hammers. I love that comment. The church of God is an anvil. It's like the, again and again, false teachers or the enemies of any kind would come in and assault the church. Bang, bang, bang. But in the end, the hammer gets worn out and gets replaced by another one. And the anvil, the massive block of iron that he's working on, is still there thousands of years later. I find that so powerful, just so liberating to think, do you know what? Knowing this beforehand, yeah, you knew this would come. It will. Sometimes it'll be hard. Sometimes they'll kill you. But the church will still be there, even after the hammer has faded and gone. Secondly, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Right? So there is an, I like that because that is an, an emphasis on what all of us have to do. Because obviously it is primarily the responsibility of the elders or the pastors in the church. Like it, it is more my job to do this than the job of most of us. Right? It's like you have your job. and So this is something I, I do and we're supposed to do it. And it's good that we do and take responsibility for it. But Peter doesn't let us get away with saying, oh, don't worry, I'm sure the pastors in your church will cover it. Actually, he says, you need to take care that you're not carried away. Right? Collectively and individually, you need to take care. That, I think, means people do need to be vigilant about what they read, about what they watch, about what they download, about the professing Christian content they take into their lives. I'm not, I don't want to get to the thought police here where we'll go, oh, I think you might be a secret false. No, let's not get silly about it, but at the same time, can you see the warning here? Take care. Right? Be wise. doesn't mean you only ever listen to things that are exactly what you already believe. 
But it does mean that if people are doing any of the things that we've just said, you need to be very, very careful of listening to a word they say. Take care. Because if you don't take care, you might lose your stability. They might not make your house fall down, but they might make it subside. Right? You might, you might, just, you might well still end up with a Christian faith, but it might just be wonky. Yeah, like the leaning tower of Pisa, the leaning tower of Andrew, who was just like became wonkified because this false teaching came in and it took away his foundations. He lost his stability. And you lose your stability because someone takes away the truth. You can also lose your stability because you overreact so much to a lie that you spend your whole life going on about it. And that can be unstable as well. So you need to just don't lose your stability. Take care what you're taking in. Remain in the foundation, which is Christ, and then finally, but grow. So how do, what's my alternative to losing my foundation? I, want to take, I don't want to do that. What do I do? He said, you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what you do. Grow in grace, grow in knowledge, grow in grace, grow in knowledge. And as you do, you'll find that you'll be careful about other stuff, but without making them the main thing. Have you ever done that thing where you are trying to encourage a child to cross like a bridge or a rope bridge or a, like something that they, or a pole that they're a little bit scared of and they might fall and you have to do that. You just have to focus on like My son's over there and I go, okay, Zeke, keep your eyes on me. Don't look at them. Don't look, no, don't, mate, I know it's, t- don't look down. No, don't look that way either. Don't fixate on the false teachers, on the stuff that you might, don't look at them. Look at me. We're going to be fine. You can do this. Just walk towards me. It's okay. I've got you. Okay, keep coming. Great, well done. That's the heart, I think, of this sort of text. We need to know that the false teachings are there. You need to know that if you fall, you could hurt yourself. But that's not the thing I want you to spend all your life considering. Don't look down. Gosh, I might fall that way. Oh, no, I might fall that way. And then you collapse. Instead, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the Lord and the Savior. Grow in grace. Grow in knowledge. Grow in grace. Grow in knowledge. Because he is the true teacher, unlike the false teachers. He is the one who only ever speaks what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. He is the great shepherd and overseer of the sheep. God, in his grace, gives shepherds, pastors to the church as well. But none of us have got a patch on Jesus, who is the great shepherd who's looking after us all. And I want to keep my eyes on him, his teaching, his pastoral ministry, his care. He is the crusher of the snake, the one who's going to silence his lies. I'm not. He is the truth. He has all the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And his church is an anvil which has worn out many hammers. Amen? Lord, we thank you so much for this difficult passage in many ways, but we praise you for your goodness in warning us and opening our eyes. And we want to pray now for King's Church London. We pray for you to protect this church. Lord, I pray for you to protect the the leaders of this church, the people who teach doctrine and theology, the group leaders, everybody here. I pray that you protect the whole congregation from error, from things that might lead us astray. Lord, I pray for this site in Beckenham that's just going to begin in the next month. Lord, often Satan likes to attack little things, babies. He loves going for them because he wants to lead astray things when they're early. We pray, God, that sight, God, that, God, Charles and Amy, Lord, God, this church from the attacks of the devil and station your angels around us to guard us with your sovereign power and hand. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray that as we pursue him, you would cause us to grow in the knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. In his name. Amen.